Greetings, Langonauts, one of our favorite Lango demonyms. And speaking of amazing Lango demonyms, Langonyms, <laughs> Peter had a really good one that we got to share with you. Okay, what do you call it when a student at Lango is studying multiple languages at the same time? I don't know. What do you call it? Langols. <laughs> nice. Hey, oh, nice. <laughs> Okay, so today's episode is called, What Even Is a Syllable? And that raises the question of the syllable, what even is it? So uh, the syllable is a rhythmic unit in human speech, right? It's a useful concept for learning other languages. And of course it's useful to language science as well, which is where we draw it from. So, um, maybe you've learned about the syllable in school. I don't know. Uh, sometimes in America, it's taught with clapping. You clap the syllable. But uh, there are different rhythmic systems in the world, and not all of them employ the syllable. Uh, English, I would say, uses a syllable. Um, there is another system called the mora, which is used by languages such as Japanese. And there are other proposed systems as well, such as stress-timed and things like that. Um, but for the sake of this podcast, we're going to focus on the syllable. And even though it may not be um, the most accurate theoretical analysis for every language, it's useful for the language learner to learn pretty much any language. So that's why we're focusing on the syllable. Now, Tyler has uh, kind of a heuristic to think about when you're trying to think about syllables. Oh, yeah. More on Mora about that later. Ah! <laughs> Hmm. Tyler and a cat love it. Yeah, this cat is wise. <laughs> For those that don't know, Tyler is a cat lover. That's unrelated to linguistics. Perhaps. How many cats? How many cats do you have right now? So around it hovers around three. Three. Yeah. You've tripled your. <laughs> amount of cats in place. All right, so we have a slide up about, it has a cat, in case you're listening and not watching, it is a cat with his mouth very wide open. Um, and the quote is a quote from Tyler. It says, a mouthful of language. Tyler, do you want to explain that for us? So my thinking is, uh, we, we're probably all familiar with the basic division in speech sounds between consonants and vowels. And vowels are mouth opening sounds, while consonants are mouth closey sounds. And the syllable is made of, put, of grouping those together with a vowel in the center. And if you count the number of times you, you open your mouth while saying a word, onomatopoeia, you can count the number of syllables. Nice. So in case you aren't watching, the cat has a little bubble saying, syllables as a series of opening and closings and you see the cat's mouth is very wide open it's hilarious trust me <laughs> believe me folks it's hilarious okay so uh it's helpful to view rhythmic units syllable or not as a landing spot for stress now i'm introducing this new term stress we've sort of talked about it in other podcasts but uh, I want, we need to expand a little bit more about it in this podcast since we're talking about syllables. So when we talk about stress, 
Um, one thing you might want to look for is an acoustic correlate. What is an acoustic correlate? That means if I say a syllable is stressed in English, what acoustic properties does it have that I could, I could say put this speech into a spectrogram and measure the spectrogram and know without listening, but just through looking at the spectrogram, uh, which syllables are stressed, right? And you can know the syllables on a spectrogram very easily by the hint Tyler gave in the last slide. So vowels are extremely easy to spot in a spectrogram. They have formants and stuff. It's the open mouth really, part. We should do that. We should look at that one of these podcasts. Really interesting. We need to have a future podcast where we do a little bit of spectrogram reading so people could see how they could measure their own speech and learn things about other people's speech. So when we look at stress, we're going to use English as our example, uh, but it's pretty much universally true. There's actually not any one-to-one -one acoustic correlate for stress, not just in English, but there's what makes stress in English, the acoustic correlates, aren't the same as what it is in other languages. Right. Maybe we should talk about what they are in English. So there's loudness for one and aspiration. Right. Exactly. So, so there's this paper in 1958 by Fry. And Fry tests the things that Tyler's talking about, calling them, instead of loudness, he calls it amplitude. Right. So Fry tests for length, amplitude, pinch, pitch, intensity, etc. Um and Fry kind of concludes there's no one-to-one -one correlate. And Fry and follow-up work over the past 50, 60 years has kind of concluded that in English, maybe pitch is the best acoustic correlate for it. Mm -hmm. But a combination of things like length, amplitude, pitch, and intensity uh, kind of make up the, the what is it of stress, right? So as a useful heuristic, we can compare some words in English which under a certain view, only differ by stress. The first example is produce and produce. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a noun verb shift in English. We do it with several words. Mm -hmm. I do not think these are native English words. These are words borrowed in uh, from Latin sources. Because I see it a lot in Portuguese between past tense and present tense. We're going to talk about that later. Mm. So, if you are a native speaker of English, you may perceive that the only difference between produce and produce is stress. Maybe you've never thought about it. You should think about it now, though, because we're talking about it. You <laughs> <laughs> think about it now. But this is very useful for language mm. learners. Yep. That's right. Yeah, Particularly if you're learning English, it's going to be useful. But if, you can, if you're a native speaker of English learning another language, learning about it in English will help you learn about it in other languages and help you recognize it. Stress is so subconsciously assigned and interpreted that it's actually one of the least intuitive topics in all of linguistics. Um, people struggle, I know that I did, particularly at the beginning of my linguistics career, struggled to perceive stress accurately even in my native language, right? But after you get used to it, you know, you become a whiz at it. Take it for granted though. Yep. So it's also, it's useful to point out, I think that in English, maybe not every word, but every phrase that you utter is going to have at least one stressed syllable in it. Mm -hmm. I agree. I would like, like to quibble with one of the, uh, I'd like to quibble with one of the things you said just now, Peter, you said you may see the only, or hear the only difference is in the stress, that, that the vowel qualities actually differ between produce, produce, in, the, in all these word pairs. I agree. That's actually why I said you may, if you're a native speaker. <laughs> If you're a linguist, you'll say, well, 
there's the an alternation volume. between an O and a schwa reduced. in. That's right, mm -hmm. an alternation between produce and produce. produce. Right. Pro versus pro. Right. But this is, this is often not taught to in English classes in terms of pronunciation. Explicitly. I was not taught it even as a native speaker of English. Right. I never realized there was two words until I was a linguist. Absolutely. Right. What I want to say uh, about Tyler's point is there are analysis. It's a possible analysis of English that actually, like Lisa was saying, we were all talking at once, but she mentioned that it could just be that the difference between produce and produce is not a difference between pro and pra, that that's the result of stress. So when stress is on the O, it's pronounced as a full O. And when an O in the underlying form under this analysis is unstressed as in produce, then it reduces to schwa. We actually talked about this a little bit on the day we talked about schwa and the great schwa conspiracy. Is it a real thing or not? But I think if you're just learning, if you're a native speaker of English, it's probably easier to think about it as stress. If you're a net second language speaker, it's extremely important to know the difference in vowel qualities too. Mm -hmm. yes. And it may be the result of stress, it may not be. That's of course a matter of analysis. Uh, I actually tend to agree with Tyler's analysis on this one. But just for the sake of learning, these are our examples of words that differ by stress. Our next example is content and content. And again, it seems like an A, ka and content is reducing to schwa content when it's unstressed. Um, but it's a little bit, little bit more similar than produce and produce, which is why I included that. And just to clarify, by A, you mean the vowel quality ah, right? I think the vowel quality ah, that's correct. The listeners otherwise. Content, that, that's the vowel in con, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Content versus content. In content, it sounds like the ah sound has been reduced to a schwa. To me. Yeah. Yeah. So while we're talking about a syllable, I thought I would introduce the anatomy of a syllable. What are the parts? Right. So the front of a syllable, if we're viewing it as left to right, remember in previous podcasts, linguists always view things as left to right. The mouth is pointed left to right, etc. So the front, meaning not the middle at this point, we'll explain <laughs> further. That's usually where the consonants go. Um, is called the onset, right? The onset is the beginning of things and it's the beginning of a syllable. The middle of a syllable is called the nucleus, right? Which is a scientific term for stuff in the middle of a system, right? So like- It's a kernel. <laughs> K-E-R-N-E-L, not the military rank, kernel. I didn't know which one you were going for. I was like, hmm. At first That's I thought- kernel. Okay, so the end of a syllable, we're talking about as a linear thing that happens in time, is called the coda. Right? Which means tail. I did not know that. That makes sense, though. It's the tail of the syllable. So typically, um, the onset and coda, if it's populated, it will be filled with consonants, and the nucleus will typically be a vowel. So we represent these kind of things inside syllables as C for consonants and V for vowels. So if I were to write down capital C, capital V, capital C, other linguists would know that that is a sequence of consonant, vowel, and then consonant. We will call that a closed syllable, right? So now that you have a basic understanding of the syllable, 
we're going to go on to syllable anatomy 102. This is slightly more advanced than syllable anatomy 101. All right, so in our CBC closed syllable, we have it structured here. Um, it, we have formalized it, if you are looking. It looks like a triangle, sort of. At the top, there is the word syllable, and this represents the whole syllable, often represented with a sigma in linguistics. And there are three lines coming from it. The first line goes to K, which is our onset in the word cat, because we had that syllable cat earlier. So now our syllable is cat. And you might think cat starts with a C, but that is in the orthographic form, which we have uh, represented there with uh, angled brackets. And the beginning is a K, even though it's spelled with a C. We call that the onset. And one line from our, our dominating node, the syllable itself, the highest level, goes straight to the onset. It, that's K in cat. Another line goes to the middle, to nucleus. And the nucleus of cat is a. Ah. We call that vowel an ash in linguistics. Is that what y'all call it? Sometimes. That's what I call it. Ash. What else do you, what else my, do you call it? My pronunciation student at the moment refers to it as the flower-shaped vowel. Oh, my <laughs> pronunciation students say A-E. <laughs> the flower-shaped vowel? I like that. Does it look like a flower? Yeah, I can see it. Looks yeah, like a four-lip clover. Mm -hmm. Hat tip to bow. <laughs> English nice. will. All right, so the third line goes to T, which is our coda. So these three form a constituency, which we call the syllable. Constituency means like a unit that acts together or moves together. Um, our shared teacher, Hadge Ross, has a saying, OCM, only chunks move. And it's a constituency test for syntax, but it works for this too, right? These are a chunk. It's a thing that sticks together. Okay, now you are very seasoned uh, anatomy of syllable students. So we're going to move on to the second part of syllable anatomy 102, which is much longer than syllable anatomy 101. So now we're talking about a constituency within a constituency. So that's a group within a group. Tyler mentioned earlier that any phrase in English will have uh, some sort of stress or a tonic or something, a tone. So a phrase could be something like a green dog. Like you could say, Bill pets a green dog. And a green dog is its own constituency syntactically. Likewise, due to the dual structure of language, meaning it's fractal, it's refractal. This is one of the recursive properties of language, not the one Chomsky is typically referring to. But there's always constituents within constituents. It's true with the syllable, too. Here we have the same word, cat, K-ash-T, and we are proposing to you this new constituency between the nucleus and the coda. We call that the rhyme, R-I-M-E. I know that you can spell it the same way as rhyming as in words that sound the same, but I was introduced to this spelling, and I think that's maybe the more conventional spelling. When talking about syllables? Yes, when talking about syllables. But it is also generally the part of the word that people try to rhyme with in English, right? So A and T form a constituency. On this particular slide, I can't give you evidence for this constituency, but I promise to pay later. I will show you evidence for it. You want to talk about spoonerisms? Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? 
Okay, so uh, Spoonerism is named after a figure in the 19th century. He was, was a reverend and he did it without meaning to. He would say things like, instead of our dear old queen, he would switch the onsets of syllables, our queer old dean, the <laughs> reverend Spooner. So it's named after him. And what that shows is that the K in a word like cat is liable to move. It's right, so the, the, the rhyme sticks together in those cases. While, the, while it's the onset alone, whether simple or complex onset, like in qu queer and yeah, and so on. The onset will travel, the rhyme will stay in place. That's right. So a spoonerism of my name, Peter Shulky, would be Sheeter Bulky. I never said it out loud. Now that I heard it, it doesn't sound as good as I thought it was going to. Sheeter Bulky. I like it. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's Henceforth, my spooner's name. Sheeter. Right. So um, I guess uh, uh, this is another example of evidence for the constituency of nucleus and coda as they stick together uh, in English. Right. Um, so it might be sort of worth mentioning a little bit that a little bit in the, the cutting edge modern phonology, there is evidence that the onset and the nucleus act as a constituent in some languages, but it's a much more rare phenomena. So I think that uh, for now we'll focus on this way. And if you want to know more about the constituency of onset and nucleus, send us a message. My email's on the end of every single podcast. You can reach out to me and we'll talk about it. All right, so moving on to our next slide of syllable anatomy 102. We're going to talk about light versus heavy. So a light syllable is one um, which has only a nucleus in the rhyme. Right? So no coda uh, in a light syllable. Uh, so particularly no consonant coda, but no coda. So no sort of glide or diphthong or whatever. Some languages treat it differently. We'll talk about that more in a second. For now, I'll give you a few examples of light syllables. The word for the indefinite article in English, a, normally pronounced a, uh, so like I have a green dog, a uh, is a light syllable because it only has a nucleus. Also, the dative preposition in English, to, as in I went to the park, um, only has an onset and a nucleus. So that's a light syllable. Now, we inherited a word from the Vikings for a fun wintertime activity called skiing. Now, ski, be it the verb or the noun, is a light syllable, even though it has two things in the onset, because in English and most languages, what makes the difference between light and heavy syllables is what's in the coda. So now we're going to give a few examples of heavy syllables as well. And as a reminder, a heavy syllable has a nucleus plus a coda or length, right? So vowel length could make a otherwise light syllable as a heavy syllable. So um, in some languages, these things, as mentioned in previous slides, tend to differ quite a bit uh, between languages. You could say each language has their own personality and they treat things differently. And within every language, there's tons of variation and these are the other flavors of the personality as well. Some examples of heavy syllable include our favorite example for today, which is cat. 
because it has a T at the end. Although in my native English, it has a glottal stop at the end. But for the sake of these langarinos, I will pronounce it with a T. Another example of a heavy syllable may be a different pronunciation of two, right? So particularly the two in, that means also, the two as in, I like green dogs too. That's a little bit longer than I like to swim, right? So maybe we would find some phenomena that would indicate that one, two, <laughs> one, two, <laughs> one, two is a heavy <laughs> syllable, but another two is not, right? So we have this written here in square brackets that say T-U-W for the long two, as in I like dogs too. And a T in schwa is in I like to swim. So these might be different. We might even look for some phenomena which hinges on these, right? But that's a topic for another day because it gets pretty complicated. I want to now give you a brief survey of syllables. Particularly, we're looking at syllable shapes. What can a syllable look like? Now, the most simple, and we're going to use all English examples with a minor commentary on what happens in other languages. So, uh, our first syllable is just a vowel, a vowel by itself. Now, it is universally allowed with a hedge, right? S meaning it's not 100% universally allowed, but generally, if you are learning a new language, you should expect that they allow some words to just be a vowel, with, that some syllables at least are just a vowel and have nothing else in them. And Tyler, you mentioned this isn't necessarily universally true. Would you like to discuss your counterexample? Um, I believe you said- really. Chinese? Yeah, that's what I remember. Well, well, stop. Right, there it seems, if you have a, a syllable that is spelled with just a vowel, like uh, hungry, in the onset position, you will likely have a glottal stop sound. That's made by hold, uh, briefly closing the vocal folds, uh, uh, the uh-oh sound in English. So some phonologies require some kind of consonant in an onset, and if there's nothing else specified, it'll be that glottal stop. Is that true in a phrase? That's a good question. I would need to do a bit more research to answer that. Because in dictionary form, meaning this in linguistics means if you say one word in isolation, in most speakers of most languages, when they're saying one word in isolation, if the word begins with a vowel, it will have phonetically a glottal stop at the beginning. Because when you're not breathing, of course, you close your glottis. So if you're preparing to speak and loading up that subglottal pressure, usually the glottis is closed and people will naturally put a glottal stop at the beginning of a vowel in isolation, even though it's not necessarily in the so-called underlying form. So this is, a question, this is a question for Chinese for us. Is it the case that if you have this word hungry in a sentence, do you begin it with a glottal stop? We'll have to Anyhow, look at some spectrograms. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think even, even if it's not true for Chinese, I have heard of this phenomena in other languages as well, mm -hmm. but it's fairly rare. Um, most languages that you encounter will allow a vowel by itself to stand as a syllable. For example, Portuguese does with their um, definite articles, O and A. So you can say, O menino, the boy, A menina, the girl, right? And the O and the A are standing by themselves. The next 
uh, syllable shape that we have is CV. That stands for consonant vowel again. And this is also, as far as I know, universally allowed for real. I don't know of any right. language. I've never heard of one that doesn't allow this sort of shape. And you can imagine why this is not only universally allowed, but the most common syllable shape cross-linguistically. There are languages which only allow this shape. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, Hawaiian language only allows this shape, and it's very common in the Oceanic language family. The only branch of Oceanic, just as a note, that typically allows codas, and even lots of them, is the Micronesian groups, because they underwent a stress shift and then reduction, right? But that's a story for another day. So anyways, our example in English is go. Now, in English, go kind of ends with uh, an off-glide, a labial. Wah, that's right. So if you spoke a language like Portuguese or Spanish, they may allow you to really say um, rounded vowels without a glof glide. So the second person singular in Spanish is tu. I hope that pronunciation's okay. Anyways, there's no off glide at the end, even if my unaspirated T wasn't perfect. The Japanese word for five, go. It's just, go. there's nothing coming after that O vowel. Perfect example. Our next work, we're gonna call it a common syllable shape, is VC. So that's vowel consonant. And in English, this is exemplified by the word of. Full of pizza. Right. So <laughs> where did that sentence come from? So of only has a vowel and a consonant. Now, this is actually not as common cross-linguistically as you might think. There are many languages which do not allow codas. So an example I have here is Hawaiian language. In a prominent theory of phonology, and phonology is kind of the study of the mental side of speech sounds, so it's not phonetics. Um, in a prominent theory of phonology called optimality theory, they propose a constraint called no coda, right? Which means that the language doesn't allow codas. And under optimality theory, every language in the world has a constraint against codas, but they have other constraints which rank differently, and then other constraints may outrank no coda and allow codas in the language, such as English. But you can see why proposing such a constraint is useful for language science, um, because you notice this pattern that many languages don't allow codas, and that in many languages, there's restrictions on codas that aren't restricted on onsets. There seems to be a lot more restrictions on the coda if it's available cross-linguistically than onsets. So you can see the motivation for this. And as a language learner, you don't have to learn anything about optimality theory, but the idea that codas are where the restrictions are gonna be might be useful as you jump into learning new languages. So for example, Tyler, I think you were mentioning there's, they allow codas in Chinese as well, right? Uh, we're talking about Mandarin, yeah, there's four or five coda sounds that you can get after a vowel but only those four or five, right? And you can't just put anything in the coda. That's right. right? Is that true for Korean content. as well? Uh, in terms of restrictions on this, yes. Only a couple yeah. things. Yeah, only a couple things. So if you are studying Korean at Lango, and you should be, 
then one thing you may have noticed is that there are three types of stops mm -hmm. in Korean. There is unaspirated, aspirated, and tense. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Plain or lax, aspirated, and tense is how the students learn it. And yeah, that's very useful. And certain sounds can't be in the coda. Right. Only one type of stop can be in the coda. Right. If you want to know, sign up for Korean lessons. So <laughs> I'm joking. It's very Googleable. It's very easy to know. It's mm -hmm. the least marked of them is the one that's allowed. Yeah. So this concept is useful for language learners, um, whether or not you are a practitioner of theoretical phonology. Okay. So the next syllable in our survey is CVC, the one we've been celebrating all, uh, all podcasts so far. Our example here is the word... <laughs> is the word rock, right? Now, you might be thinking, hey, rock has two letters in what should be its coda, C-K, R-O-C-K in English, but the sounds are just R-A-K. That's a closed syllable with three sounds. Right, if you just close your eyes and say the word aloud, listen to how many sounds follow the vowel rather than using your eyes. Mm -hmm. That's right. Probably every podcast we're going to have to repeat one of our central tenets, which is writing is different than sounds. Okay, the next syllable is one we've discussed a little bit. That is C, C, V, such as ski. And this also becomes less common cross-linguistically. There are many languages which love to have an onset, but only one thing, right? So there's some constraint against complex onsets. Of course, if you think complex onsets are bad, you should think complex codas are worse <laughs> if, if you're a language, if you were one. Does Hawaiian have any onset clusters? As far as I know, Hawaiian does not allow onset clusters. Most oceanic languages do not. It's a rare circumstance that they do. Of course, this is phonological clusters. Languages like Roviana allow a phonetic, an apparent phonetic cluster because all voice stops are pre-nasalized. Uh -huh. So a word like fish, which might be written H-A-B-U, and is phonologically just four sounds, mm -hmm. is phonetically hambu. I think that's the word for fish. Just recalling off the top of my head without a dictionary. It's a word. They have many words, of course. Sasa is another one. Okay, so um, what we see is there is restrictions on what can be in the onset or coda, and usually one thing's allowed in the onset in most languages. I mean, it must be. There's no language that just has vowels. That we know of. That we know of. <laughs> that we know of. It would be cool to find a language which had, say, 35 phonemic vowels and no consonants. It would be very hard for us uh, limited vowel speakers to understand. If you were a conlanger, it'd be a really cool one to construct that had only vowels, no consonants. Yes, conlang is short for constructed language. And mm -hmm. that is what you see in things like Game of Thrones with Dothraki and if you're a Star Trek fan with Kling. Um, this is also why if you're a linguist, you'll notice that the pronunciation between Khaleesi and the other people she speaks to are wildly different because mm -hmm. it's not a natural language. So there is no native pronunciation. She had to learn it. Calling David I, Peterson to <laughs> create a, a, a new conlang. If you really want vowels. to torture the actors, Make it a language that only allows vowels as syllables, <laughs> and it has 45 phonemic vowels. And they need right. a lot of training. <laughs> I think only consonants would be even cooler. 
<laughs> only consonants. Well, there are some languages that are close, right? But that's a little bit, you're unlikely to learn a major world language that allows stops as uh, nucleus. All right, so I believe we are on VCC, where you have a complex coda, but no onset. And this is, of course, pretty rare, but totally permissible in English. It's illegal, not illegal. It's legal. It's good. We like it. And an example of this is arm, as in the thing between your shoulders and your hands. So uh, that is A-R-M. It's spelled that way. And that is a phonemic representation in English, which I'm pretty happy about. There's not so many. The next one uh, is C-C-V-C. -C -C, and we've also picked one that's orthography matches its phonemic representation. And that is the word star. You may know this word in another language like Spanish or Portuguese and notice they don't say star, right? So in Portuguese, it's estrela. Seems to me that that STR is very conspicuously similar. I'm guessing those words are related. You would be correct. But there's a limit on what you can put in the onset in Portuguese. So they actually put a vowel before the S, right? Moving on. Our next word is also a word from historical linguistics. It's called drift. <laughs> if you want to know more about that, please contact Lango. One of the most interesting phenomena in the world, very parallel to convergent evolution, it's convergent sound change. And drift has two things in the onset, D and R, and two things in the coda, F and T. That's a CCVCC syllable. That's pretty complex. Few languages in the world allow this uh, much of a tough syllable. Let's take pride, English speakers. Yes, we should make a harder word for pride even, like prizz or something. <laughs> okay, our next word is strong, and that's C-C-C-V-C, -C -C, right? Now, this is not the most complex syllable in English. When I say complex syllable, I'm referring to a syllable that has a lot of stuff in the onset and nucleus. What is the most complex syllable in a language will be the one that has the most things in both concept, uh, onset and coda. Right, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Starting to spoonerism there. <laughs> it, was a, it was a real spoonerism because it was purely accidental. <laughs> Just like uh, in homage to Spooner himself. So today we're actually going to move on to comparatively speaking much quicker than normal, but that's because we want to talk about the syllable phenomena across languages. We're going to talk about um, the H in English, and that segment's called What the H, and it's exploring restrictions on the English H. We're going to talk a little bit about if haiku poems from Japanese are actually translatable in English, because um, what happens with light and heavy syllables in Japanese? And then we're going to do a little bit tiny more about phonological theory with weight to stress principle, probably my favorite thing in phonology at this point. And we're going to look at weight to stress principle, also called WSP. We're going to look at WSP in Hawaiian and Portuguese, right? Um, so starting off, we're going to look at stress and syllable restrictions in English under the title, what the H? What the H? <laughs> Um, a small <laughs> note, did you guys uh, ever notice that there are Englishes which use the sound H in their name yes. for the word H? 
I was shocked when I arrived in Australia and people said H. But it makes a lot of sense. It should have the sound of the letter in it. So um, anyways, moving on. If, they, if we apply that principle to W, what does that get us? Wubble you? <laughs> I wubble you. It has W in the end. The, the W is at the end of W. Good eye. And the, and the letter Y also at the end. That's They're right. The alphabet together there too. Oh, this is, the, this is a new project and a new challenge. Next podcast, look for a wild <laughs> challenge having to do with alphabet sounds. Okay, so I'm just going to spoil it with H and tell you H is banned from the coda in English, right? In fact, if you are a native speaker of English, you may struggle to learn and to learn to pronounce and perceive the H in coda of other languages that you want to learn. Two major world languages that I know of use H in the syllable, and that is Indonesian and Portuguese. They both allow H in the syllable, and it's actually pretty common. And if you aren't used to looking for it, you might not even hear it. So and an example... Point, we're talking about the sound, huh, not just the letter H. We have words in English that end in H, but mm -hmm. we mean the sound here. That's right. We have, sounds. we have words that are spelled with H, like huh, um, meh, but I'm pronouncing it with an H there to be silly. But says, that's right. Uh, o and ah, mm -hmm. these don't actually have an H at the end. They're just spelled that way. Uh, a, a word from Portuguese that does have H's in it is spelled D-O-R-M-I-R. -R. And in the dialect of Portuguese that I speak, the Carioca dialect of Rio de Janeiro, R's in those positions in codas are pronounced as H, but the orthographic R is pronounced as an H. May even be an H in the phonemic representation. Story for another day. The Portuguese word to sleep sounds like this. Dormi. I don't know if you can hear that over the mic, but it might be because you're a native speaker of English. The mic might be working fine, right? So H in onsets is okay in English, right? Because it's not allowed in the coda. Well, sort of. Mm -hmm. So H as onset of stress syllable. Our second point on stress and syllable restrictions regarding H in English is that H kind of can only be in certain onsets. This is where stress starts coming back in. So you get a word like... V-E-H-I-C-L-E. -E. And uh, how do y'all pronounce that word? Vehicle for me. Same vehicle. Vehicle. Same, same for me. So it's V-A-C-L in my mm -hmm. three syllables. Actually, it is spelled with an H, but I don't pronounce it with an H. But there is a potentially acceptable um, pronunciation, which is vehicle, right? Now, the difference between vehicle and vehicle is not just the H. When English speakers want to say vehicle, they have to put secondary or perhaps even primary stress on the syllable with the I sound so that the H can appear. Um, this might lend some insight into the pronunciation difference between vehicle and vehicular. So vehicular is, of course, uh, adjectival form. And when you add in that extra sound at the end, vehicular, when you add in that extra unit, it, it shifts the stress so that it's still in line with its right spot in the end of the word. We can talk about sound pattern of English another day. Um, 
but it basically allows that. So a similar kind of alternation between electric and electricity. Now that's called velar softening. It's a different phenomena, but you notice that the stress shift causes some things, right? And the same with <laughs> vehicle and ve vehicular, right? Also note the alternation between the, the vowels, right? So when you say, uh, sorry, which, which vowels? Okay. In vehicle and vehicle, you don't say, you say via, which I have as a schwa, and then I do too. Uh, so the stress can, one might argue that the schwa is a reduction of this vowel in the unstressed form again. So this, the schwa conspiracy never ends in English. The best evidence that schwa reels is subpoena, I think. <laughs> reels, by the way, in case you're not as hip as me, <laughs> reels is just a verb form of to be real. It's just a new. So what I mean is that if the schwa is real, subpoena, the word, is great evidence because it ends at the end and it's a verb. It's okay. the only verb that I've found, or one of a very small number of verbs of which that's true, where the stem ends in a schwa. The thing you're adding suffixes to, mm -hmm. subpoenaing, subpoenas. It's a rare word. Another? Please let us know if you do. Yeah. Are there I've any others? I've been thinking about it. Hmm. Challenge lingo getters. Just got to figure it out. Challenge. If you figure that out, we'll give you the biggest shout out ever. Come up with a second word that ends that way. You'll be laying goat. <laughs> We're hitting almost all the demonyms today. <laughs> okay. I want to do uh, a little more calculus or more a calculus nice. on light and heavy syllables. Nice. <laughs> so where are all these mora puns coming from? Well, we mentioned mora a little bit earlier. That mora is a is the word for the unit of stress. Mm, not stress. Rhythmic time. unit. Timing unit. Yeah, the time the rhythmic unit in Japanese. Maybe uh, I've even read uh, analysis in which Japanese doesn't have stress, just pitch and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly think many words don't have it in the underlying form. Um, there's some very interesting analysis out there, but we're just going to teach you what's useful for learning. And this is something that's worth considering. A one more word in Japanese is one which has, if you were using the syllable to measure it, a one more word has nothing in the coda, right? But as soon as there's anything in the coda, it's two mora. You've got to remember the rhythmic unit is different. So um, oh, we're going to start with the one more words, and then this will become clear when you look at the two more words. So a one more uh, word in Japanese, an example of a one mora unit would be ah. I have it written here in uh, hiragana. Yeah, I, and don't, I don't really think this is a word. I, yeah, does this have a meaning on its own? Let's use uh, the example e, which means picture. All right, e. perfect. Mm -hmm. As a, is a word. I yeah. just meant that ah is one mora, whether it's, mm -hmm. I know that people say sometimes like ah, like at the beginning of something. So that would be a long one though. Yeah, I, I think maybe it's not a word, but this one unit written here, Ghana, is certainly only one mora, right? And it's one vowel. Uh, it's useful to know that there is a one vowel word. I did not know that. I think oo means tail or something, maybe. Sorry, what language? Japanese. Japanese? I can't remember. Oo means tail or something. It's maybe Googleable. Oh. It's a Japanese. short O sound. Oh. Oh. Yeah. We can use that too. So, eh, meaning picture is one. 
give you the kanji as well. Oh yeah, I'd heard it. I'd, I'd heard it out loud. I hadn't read it. Yes, it's certainly an O. Anyhow, uh, the main point here is that one vowel by itself would count as one mora, a one vowel unit. Now, if you have a CV unit, such as the word for I, me, mm -hmm. then I is in what you're yeah, eyeball. You see out of. Yes, I forget that there's I, me, and I, ball, right? <laughs> so this is the thing you see with is called me or me. I think me is an English pronunciation, though. No, I think in Japanese they just do me, and me. there's no uh, off glide. So this would be CV, and that would count as one mora. So far, that's like our concept of the syllable very much. One vowel, one syllable. One CV unit, one syllable. But this changes once we look at two mora word, two mora units. Morai? Morai. <laughs> is the technical term. It's very hard for me not to say moras. Because the spelling, a yeah, A-E. Uh, so a C-V-B. pronunciation too, Mori. Mori or Morai? Mori, Morai, Mori. Uh, like if you look at the spelling of C-A-E-S-I-R, that one, Caesar, so A-E mm. should be pronounced. Mm. Mori. Okay. Mori. For those just listening, it's by itself, mora is spelled M-O-R-A, but in the plural, it's M-O-R-A-E. And Tyler is proposing a pronunciation <laughs> like Mori, and we are endorsing this pronunciation. I would also propose that it's pronunciation, not pronunciation. Uh, it's the same singular plural pattern as an alumna, alumni. True. Okay. That's it. useful. You say alumni? That's how it... Oh, man, I've been saying that wrong, too. Yeah, the for spelling is powerful here. <laughs> for those listening, my face is expressing extreme skepticism right now. I've definitely been saying alumni my no, that, entire life. I, I say alumni. That, that's the masculine plural, spelled with an I. The feminine plural is spelled with A-E, alumni. It's not very often heard. I don't huh. think I've ever spoken aloud, but that would be the official plural of alumni. You're getting extra bonus material this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the Mora, um, a CVV uh, unit would count as two Mora. So we have the word today, kyo, which is CVV. If you are an English speaker and you're a native speaker of English, it may be hard to hear the difference between these two uh, units. A, kyo, B, I'm exaggerating so you can hear, but there's, we can call it a length difference. The first one should be in shorter, it should be kyo. 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 Like kyo. the first syllable to say last year, kyonen. Kyonen. Right, so um, the point is though in English, uh, either kyo or kyo would be one syllable in English. And in syllable heavy, in languages which are analyzed as having syllables, they would, that was how it, how it works. In a Mora system, though, this length means it's two units, two rhythmic units in, in Japanese, two Morai. Mori, good, excuse uh, me. Mori. So is a beat. You can count a beat along while you're saying Japanese words and just one beat is one Mora, if you like. Kyo, kyo. Kyo. Is that three beats? Two. So the vowel gets two beats. 
Okay. I'm, the beat method is I'm I'm an, I'm new to it. I'm a noob. It's not as helpful for me quite yet. But uh, returning to the mora again, we have CVC, right? Now this in a syllable would still be one syllable, but this would be two mori, two mori. It's going to be hard to correct that one. Um, I have an example. Of course, I love to constantly connect phenomena between Japanese and Portuguese. If you have not noticed that yet, there's two languages I love very much. <laughs> so I have picked a word in Japanese that is loaned from Portuguese, and that is the word pan, which means bread. Uh, Portuguese modern pronunciation is pão. So P-A-N is two mori, but it would be one syllable. So this brings us a big question about haikus. So I assume it's somewhat common in the U.S. to know what a haiku is and that it has something to do with rhythm. When I was a kid in school, I think several different years we had to write haikus. Me too. I think it's it's I a fun. I loved thing it. To do. I still think it's fun. I am not a good haikuist, so <laughs> I'm not a good haiku poet, but I think they're very clever and I enjoy them. But there is a problem now that we know the difference between rhythmic units in English and Japanese. There is a discrepancy between those two units. For example, the word pan is one syllable in English and two mori, mori in Japanese. Now, if you're trying to make haikus in English, they typically tell you it's this many syllables for this, this many syllables for this, but if you are using closed syllables, then your syllable count will be wrong for the Japanese mori count. Same with diphthongs too. We could look at the word haiku itself. To us, it's two syllables, haiku, but in Japanese, it's haiku, three beats, three mori. Haiku, for those listening, it's just stretch it out. It's haiku. It would be three. That's a perfect example, Tyler. That's two syllables in English. That's going to be three mori in Japanese. So the question is, are haiku poems translatable? And I guess you could say, I could know what you mean. I could know the meanings of the words. But some of the beauty of the poem is lost in translation because you can't preserve the rhythmic units. And because of the pressure of Japanese language, these rhythmic units are more important. For example, Japanese has um, coda restrictions. They only, if they are, Obviously, they don't have a syllable, they have a mori, but if you want to analyze it as a syllable, they only allow the nasal to be in the end, right? Is that right? Well, in the middle of a word, you have a different thing, too. You can have a beat of silence. Ah, like the geminate sounds? Right. Those twin ah, sounds. Ah. So, a perfect example. That so, not happen word finally, but you get it in the middle of words. Nice. Right. So, um, this really makes us wonder, like, is that, oh, what I was saying is that because they have limited uh, final codas, word final codas, you can't have a geminate at the end. It has to be intervocalic. And because they have some a limited number of uh, phonemic vowels compared to a language like English, English has complex codas. Many things are allowed in the coda and many types of vowels allowed at the end of words. So in English, our poetry tends to focus more on rhyming right but rhyming is less important when 
verbs come at the end of sentences and many verbs end in the same sound. It becomes trivial. Rhythm becomes much more important. And uh, anybody who knows about English poetry knows that rhythm is incredibly important in English poetry too. Um, so Hadj Ross, our shared teacher, may argue that poems are untranslatable from any language to the other because of these subtleties. Mm, that's a good point. And hopefully this makes everyone want to learn Japanese. I hope so. Gambate. <laughs> I didn't even make it Geminate. I'm the worst. <laughs> After all that talk. All right. So now we're finally going to introduce a little bit about weight to stress principle. All right. So the uh, weight to stress principle essentially says that stress will be attracted to weight. An we alternate version of this, our, weight meaning heavier light. For our listeners, for the benefit of the listeners, we're talking about W-E-I-G-H-T, weight, not W-E-I-G-H-T. Uh, wait, wait a minute. Yep. Okay. Weight versus heavy, heavy okay. weight. So ac across languages, it, there's a conspiracy, a phenomena, uh, which seems to apply to many of them, which is that either stress lands on heavier syllables or heavy syllables are only allowed when they're stressed. That's a matter of analysis. We just call the phenomena weight to stress principle. Uh, but it could be the reverse too. It could be stress to weight principle. So length matters in Hawaiian language. Now, um, I bring this up uh, so that you know that some languages have long vowels. We discussed it a little bit in Japanese, but though Japanese doesn't represent it necessarily orthographically that way. So if you're a student of Japanese, you may think it's a sequence of vowels rather than one long vowel just by the reading. In Hawaiian, their, their orthography indicates long vowels with a macron, and that is a straight line uh, above the vowel. It looks kind of like uh, a tone from a tonal language. Hmm. Tone marking. I am not a, this is a preface, I am not a native speaker of Hawaiian. I am not even a very good student of Hawaiian, but I love the language very much. And while I lived in Hawaii, I studied with some people who are very dedicated scholars. And so I want to relate a little bit about Hawaiian language, but uh, just this is a note, if you are a Hawaiian person listening to this podcast and you would like to share Hawaiian li language with us, we would love to be Please come here. on, yeah, we'd love to have we you. So this is my uh, pronunciation as a weak second language student. Do not take this as authority. Okay, the word for person is kanaka, and the word for people is kanaka. Right. I think stress is still penultimate, right? But I'm just pointing out that there's uh, length. This kanaka is the thing that makes it plural, that makes it people. The same phenomena is seen in the trans transition between woman and women. And I like this example because it parallels the English example where the difference is really a difference in vowels, right? So the word for woman, singular, is wahine. And the word for women, plural, is wahine. Again, I'm attempting to stay true to, uh, I just looked this one up and listened to it on Duolingo, right, for this. And those, my understanding, are pronounced by native speakers. This is my in, in, mm -hmm. imitation. So long vowels in these words indicate plurality. It's not totally across the language, but there's a couple instances of it. So is there any way that this interacts with stress? Well, sometimes it does, right? So typically uh, it's penultimate as in aloha, which means love, but it can be a greeting like hello. 
or goodbye. Lani, which means sky, cognate with Indonesian langit, right? Uku, which begins with a glottal stop, and that means Laos. Uku is an Austronesian word for Laos, which was borrowed into English twice. Once in the word kudis from Indonesian hutu, and then once in the word ukulele from Hawaiian, which means jumping flea. And note that in the spelling form, it's indicated. That's right. They use a symbol that looks like a upside down or backwards apostrophe, and it's called an okina in Hawaiian orthography. All right, and our final example of typical penultimate stress is mahalo, which means thank you. So heavy syllables tend to attract stress, whatever that is. But uh, from what I could hear through listening, not exactly in words like ma'alama, which is to help. Waikiki. Now, Waikiki is a kind of a good example of exactly what we're talking about. Think about this. So if you, in case you aren't watching, Waikiki, which is written on the screen now, is W-A-I K long I K long I. Now these long vowel distinctions are not represented in English orthography, but you'll know that we absorbed some of it when we borrowed the word into English because consider how bad it sounds to say Waikiki. Right? Mm -hmm. I had a friend visit me while I was living in Hawaii and they said, let's go to Waikiki. And I was like, what did you just <laughs> say to me? I don't know why I thought it was so wrong. And, and like, obviously it's not that it's not, a, four, a second language speaker isn't going to, you know, know and such, but it mm -hmm. indicated to me, wow, we have preserved some of the vowel qualities of Waikiki, because in English, we say it kind of even stressed, Waikiki, mm -hmm. right? They would all act as their own foot unit. Now we have Kanaka and Wahine, and my understanding is the valley where the university is, Manoa, also has a long vowel, but then the stress is on the next thing. But what you should notice, uh, the difference is here, the weight difference is that you get wahine, but mahalo. So wa, the wa attracts, maybe we can call it secondary stress or something, right? So an alternate view is that heavy syllables create their own accent group. That is taken, I got this from Elbert and Pakui's Grammar of Hawaiian, and they got it from Sheets, 1977's Grammar of Fijian. Case you, I included this because uh, Albert Sheets recently passed away and he was my mentor uh, at Hawaii. So I wanted to give him a small homage. This sort of thing, an accent group is often called feet in modern phonology, meaning there's a, a foot is a rhythmic unit composed of syllables, typically two syllables. <laughs> Somebody just can't wait to learn more about weight stress syllable. <laughs> so uh, that was a small thing about at least secondary stress is attracted to weight, or at least even if it's not true in the Hawaiian system, it's perceived that way by uh, speakers of English like us because the weight stress principle is that universal. So let's look at the next slide. We have weight to stress principle, WSP, as a language learning tool. So this is where the good stuff starts. Um, this is where uh, you can start applying this. Now, I hope you're out there studying Hawaiian. I hope that's what's happening. Uh, but some of you won't be, and some of you will be studying Portuguese instead. And this is going to be very helpful in Portuguese because Portuguese does not necessarily 
I guess they do represent it in the orthography if you know what to look for. A little plug for uh, Peter. Peter is teaching Portuguese at Lango. So um, if you like this method for learning about Portuguese pronunciation, please join our classes here. It's new to Lango. That's right. We're doing some uh, cutting edge Portuguese language pedagogy. I don't think anybody has ever applied uh, weight to stress principle for language learning in Portuguese. But I can tell you as a language learner of Portuguese, in case you don't know, I am not a native speaker of Portuguese. Um, I am married to a Brazilian and I've been speaking Portuguese as much as I could every day for 11 years. So, so I learned Portuguese entirely through speaking. I never, in fact, uh, I, my background is in Austronesian languages. And so Portuguese was always just a fun language for me where I completely, I refused to, to learn anything formally because I thought the fun of discovery. And this is one way I learned about stress in Portuguese uh, was weight to stress. And I'll show you these examples become clear in a second. So typically Portuguese has penultimate stress. Penultimate means next to last. Ultimate would be last. So in the word for dog, cachorro, the stress is on the second to last syllable. If it was on the last syllable, it would sound like cachorro. If it was on the first syllable, it would be like cachorro. But it's on the second syllable, cachorro. This sounds good to us. I think universally, a lot of languages like penultimate stress. So probably French speakers not like it as much, but the rest of us, <laughs> most of us learn penultimate stress pretty easy. I'm sure the French speakers do too when they're learning non-French languages. Another example of penultimate stress is in the word for five, cinco. Uh, uh, which only has two syllables, so it's... Maybe Say that one more time. Say it one more time. Cinco. Ah, I hear a different vowel there on that. That's because there's, underlyingly, there is an O, but a lot of mm -hmm. times the O will raise to a U. This is uh, mid-vowel raising, and it happens with front and back vowels, but that is, that is too much for this podcast. If you really want to know about mid-vowel raising in Portuguese... Contact Lango for Portuguese lessons. We'll teach yeah, you, you gotta take day. Portuguese if you want to know. <laughs> you want to speak like you're from Rio de Janeiro? You gotta sign up at Lango. <laughs> okay, so I will teach you this though. How does weight to stress principle interact with tense and agreement? Now, this was pretty confusing for me when I started speaking Portuguese because I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't see the orthographic forms. I was only listening, and there are some forms where the present tense for first singular, or I mean the present tense for third singular sounds almost exactly like the past tense for third singular, or for first singular, I got those reversed. It'll be clear in a second when I give the examples. So for now, we're gonna give the so-called control cases, and this is present tense where you have penultimate stress in verbs. So an example might be to know, um, present tense, which would be sabe or sabi in fast speech. Uh, if I swim, present tense, that would be nado from nada, right? Now I'm giving away the next secret, which is in the infinitive form. In case you don't know what infinitive means, in English, that's to. So if you say, I like to swim, to swim is the infinitive form. If you said something like, she likes to swim, then it becomes clear that likes is the inflected form, which is non-infinitive, and then to swim, because it is the two there, is the infinitive form. We mark infinitive with a two in English. In Portuguese, that is marked by having an R at the end of the word. The R that is an H. 
The R that is an H. That's right. So this word, which is spelled like saber, if you were going to pronounce it in English, is saber in Portuguese. Right. I don't know if you could tell the stress was on the final syllable there. So previously I told you she knows, third singular present tense, is sabe. Now present tense, well, no tense, infinitive is sabe. So we've got a stress shift from first syllable in sabe to second syllable in sabe, right? This is one way you can recognize infinitive forms when people cut the H out in fast speech, right? Because if you say, I like to know, you would say, gosto saber, right? And you can see how in fast speech, people might start cutting that H a little bit. It's weak. It's at the end there, right? But you'll always know. Which form it? Because the stress moves, right? This is like, there's lots of redundancy in language like this that's informative. And you can tell parts that would be confusing because they're redundantly informed. That's an emergentism topic for another day. But that's a great tip for fast speech, which is a challenge for language learners. You, you know, I felt the same way. I studied Japanese for a year and I did two semesters of intensive study and I went to Japan. I was like, I don't understand anything, anything <laughs> at all. <laughs> it was a shock to me because, you know, that was my first second language to study. My first second language. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I want to tell you about the past tense. So now we've already looked at swim. Present tense, first singular is nado right? Past tense for singular is nade. Right? Now the stress is on the second syllable, right? Let's examine a potentially ambiguous example. Hold on though. What is that macron doing in your underlying representation? Uh, what I am proposing here, if you're looking at the um, slides we have here, you'll see that I have spelled the past tense for singular for swim in the phonemic representation as N-A-D-long-E. Uh, it is, I'm proposing here, mostly as a matter of making it easy to learn it, that actually this is just a long E. Now the pronunciate, it could be possible that this is actually a sequence of vowels. It, that could be possible, but it would be impossible to know um, with the kind of, they have like certain types of, I don't want to call it vowel harmony, but the way the mix with the vowel raising and the vowel eating, it's hard to, I can't imagine the test you'd have to do to separate if there was actually two or it's one long vowel. If you're a learner of these, it's much more useful to think of it as one long vowel. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't even know they were spelled as two different vowels until I looked it up. Like I just heard it and was like, oh, well, they have a long vowel. If, if you were, if Portuguese was an unwritten language that we were describing for the first time, I'm, I'm, I think if you came from a language that had this convention, you'd probably represent it this way. But if you're like me and had no background in it, you would just say it's one long vowel. Hmm. So I want to examine an example which is ambiguous. And you can see it's so confusing for me, thrown into Brazil, not really speaking Portuguese, just trying to figure it out. Um, and I would often say things like essentially like when I wanted to say I did something in the past, that the third person did it in the present. And this is why. You get a word like bebe which is to drink, B-E-B-E-R. Now, when it's, they are spelled quite differently in their different inflected forms, but the pronunciation is, is where it gets tricky. The third singular uh, present version of to drink would be baby. Now, it's spelled B-E-B-E, -E, but I told you already, sometimes the E raises to I, 
in these contexts, right? Like after the stress vowel. So bebi is typical pronunciation for third singular drink present. Now, first singular drink past tense is bebi, mm. right? And that one is spelled B-E-B-I with the real I there. So they aren't treating it as a sequence of long vowels here. Nonetheless, it attracts stress, right? And maybe stress causes it to look longer or the alternate view, which might be useful for the learner, is that it's a long vowel and therefore stress moves from the typical penultimate position to the final position. So you can know the difference between bebi and bebi, right? Bebi is going to be she drinks. Bebi, I drank, right? So this uh, is going to be pretty useful because even where they aren't exactly ambiguous, the way this one is, this one is ambiguous except for stress, in my opinion. Um, even with other words, there'll be a bigger difference between present. This is a particularly hard example, but there are easier examples. But the problem is a lot of the past tense forms are, the endings are similar to present tense forms and they're plausible versions of them, except for stress shifts, right? So Very useful. I, think, I think I've beat you guys in the face with uh, Portuguese stress shifts enough. It might be <laughs> time to look at one of our favorite languages at Lango. Hangugo. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for Korean, uh, the syllable, returning to the syllable, it's a very useful notion uh, for learning the pronunciation. So let's dig into what the syllable structure is. Uh, and I'm thinking of my beginner one class right now where this has come up so many times for pronunciation. Uh, so knowing this structure will really help you. So in Korean, uh, the syllable structure, what's permitted is shown here with our symbols, right? C for consonant, G for optional glide, V vowel, and then C. So in the onset position, you can have one optional consonant and then one optional glide or semi-vowel. And right? can, like, you, can you tell us real quick what you mean by glide? I yep, you can have... In, in this uh, position here, you can have y, uh, you can have palatal y, or you can have w, labial w there. So right? the y is in annyeong, right? Annyeong has it up here. Uh, if, you're if you're listening, I have a little speech bubble that says annyeong, and that means hi. Or if you're an Arrested Development fan and what, always wondered why mm. <laughs> the Korean kid was called Annyeong, it's because he ran around saying Annyeong. <laughs> All right, in the coda position, you can have one optional consonant as well. Um, and I have a little asterisk there because there is some variation with that. Um, and I'll talk about an example in just a moment. Please remind me. All right, and so that means that the only obligatory element in this syllable is the nucleus vowel, all right? And that's why everything else is shown with parentheses. All right, so let's look at some example words to illustrate all of this. So uh, we can have a syllable with just a vowel, right? Uh, an example is the word e, right? Which means, Tyler, Tyler's become very advanced at Korean. Thank you. There's a you few words. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the one that comes to mind is the word this, the point. This. Mm -hmm. Or it can mean to, mm -hmm. or it can be a verb root to be, the copula. 
Yep, it can also be the one of the uh, subject marker variants. E. No, post position. Mm -hmm. All right, um, another shape is um, an optional consonant in the onset. And I have an example down here. All right, so we have the word him. Do you remember what that means, him? Mm -hmm. Strength. Strength. Hmm. And that has the onset huh. Nucleus E and then the coda M. So another consonant in the coda. All right. And then my other example here, this is fun to say, is Pwep. Pwep. And here you have that optional glide here. Pwep. Pwep. As in Pwep Kesamnida. Yeah, that's the, one of the hardest phrases to learn in beginner one Korean. Peter, do you remember what that means? Nice to meet you. Yeah. Chom Pwep Kesamnida. Literally, it's the first time we met. It's nice to meet you, Web, the formal version of to see or meet. So the, I think the wa and this o are representing the same segment, right? That would just be represented the same way in Hangul. Yeah, yep. It's in one syllable block in terms of the writing. Yeah. It's doing double duty here. Doing double duty. That's and then I want to talk about real quick the uh, variation here. Um, in the coda, there's there. For the most part, it's only one optional consonant, uh, but there is some variation, especially with one particular word, uh, to be wide. So it's, uh, Taylor, can you annotate for me and spell that out? It's quite a complicated first syllable. What's a good place, here above the Lango logo? Lango logo where you're down no, at the bottom right? We're right there. Oh, I think our faces are right there, but anywhere there's some wow. nice white space. Oh yeah, maybe bottom right above the logo right. there. Okay. Right, so we have, it's n o l b in spelling. Uh-oh, let me move our faces a bit. Overlapping, okay. Yeah. Let me just clear, and let me move it a little bit left. Uh, I'd like to, again, um, be a little nitpicky and say that we have lots yeah. of words, lots of words and syllables spelled with complex right. colors, but we're talking about pronunciation here. Right, which is another point I'll make at the end because uh, there's rules for writing in Hanglo too, right? And I'll show you what happens with the sounds in pronunciation. So there's nice. the root. Thank you. Very nice Hanglo. Good. Nice syllable blocks there. Right, so this word uh, in the dictionary form is pronounced nopta, nopta, right? Because of the syllable structure, the l sound here is not pronounced. Although there is a little bit of variation for this one, you will hear in some varieties, nolpta, with the l sound. Uh, you can still kind of hear it there. But for the most part, uh, words like this get pronounced nopta, one uh, consonant sound there in the coda. It's also a nice English parallel. We have lots of words written with a, a now silent L, like palm and calm and so on. Yeah, salmon, also. yeah, that's a great example. Nice parallel. Is, uh, Korean writing, Hangul, is that unique in that it's the, I know that the, sometimes what's written in the coda doesn't always go in the coda, but I, I can't right. think of another writing system which uh, indicates syllable structure this way. So it, it's kind of nice. You, you get this thing called the pachim, which is the mm -hmm. bottom, which is where. Literally means the base or the foundation in this case of the syllable block. And mm -hmm. it would be the coda if it was going to be pronounced. Exactly. Now, yeah. If, if you were really into optimality theory, you would just say some things can't be the code and they bounce over to the onset due to maximal onset principle, which we didn't talk about today. 
if you people. love it. <laughs> <laughs> Most don't. Most don't. <laughs> I do though. So. <laughs> All right, here's some examples. Uh, so there's a lot of English loan words that have come into Korean. Uh, one of them is exemplified here. So the English word stripe, one syllable in English, stripe, would come in to Korean as a loan word, stripe. Okay, it becomes five syllables because it conformed oh. to conform to the syllable structure of Korean. This vowel uh, is inserted right. and becomes much longer in terms of syllables. Stripe. Um, and this is a source of much, uh, I think, amusement. Uh, in our first beginner one Korean class, I'll ask everyone to put their English name into Korean, uh, both the spelling and the writing. And many of the students are very amused at how much longer it becomes. Uh, funny story, when I was traveling in Korea for my master's thesis with also our shared professor, Dr. Patricia Sukor Avila, Right. She has quite the name. <laughs> um, in Korean, it becomes so long. What would it become with these rules? Mm -hmm. And everyone had such a hard time saying it. Patricia. Yeah, it would become something like Patricia. Patricia. Right? So five syllables. Although if you spelled it with an S, you could get the sound. Pat and then ri. Oh, pat that's true. Yeah, there are some other tactics you can pat. Right. It would still be five syllables though, but yeah, you could uh, have that, you could have that strategy there. All right, uh, the Korean example here. So in the Korean word for price is kap, kap. Okay, so you see it here. The first syllable is quite complicated here, right? So it has kiok a piop shiot, right? So it's another four stacker syllable mm. and it's pronounced cop with the p sound but then the b sound here is now pronounced to conform to the syllable structure right loses yeah or sorry the other way the loses the final shiot there cop yes uh if you had Something. a following particle like mm -hmm. the topic marker would you hear the s copson yes absolutely you would have if you have the topic marker you would hear copson Right, so that sound with, like Peter mentioned, it would bounce over, travel over to the next syllable, right, to conform to the syllable structure. Um, you could also have kapshi, kapshi with the subject marker there, right? So when it appears as a syllable uh, by itself, like here, kap, or when it has a following syllable with a consonant, so if you attach the particle meaning also to, right, it still loses the final s sound. So it'd be kapto, kapto. All right, so very useful to know for Korean uh, pronunciation. Now, this is a really good uh, NB. Very, it's different from written syllable blocks. So there's different rules for writing syllables. Here are the rules here. So you have to start with an initial consonant in a syllable block, and it can be on the left or the top. And after that, you have to have a vowel on the right or the bottom, okay? And then there's optional uh, combinations. So final vowel, consonant, or a combo. So when you have a word, for example, like name, the word for name is irum, irum. If you can, if you're uh, listening, 
uh, that first syllable has this letter here that looks like a circle, the hmm. <laughs> and then it has the vowel E, right? But that circle letter is not pronounced here. It just acts like a placeholder there to conform to the written rules, um, but it's not pronounced. So this E young has two sound values, right? In the initial uh, part of the syllable block, it's not pronounced. Whoop. All right. All right. Um, so very useful concept. Um, and for more with Korean, take Korean with us at Lango, please. That's really interesting. Peter is uh, also starting to learn Korean, and Tyler is quite the seasoned uh, Korean student and quite good. He's, you're a good example of how far <laughs> Lingo Korean can take you. All well, thanks to you. 감사합니다. Okay, turning now to Chinese. Specifically Mandarin. So the point I want to make in my slide here on Chinese syllable structure, the importance of the concept of the syllable for Chinese sounds is really it's a central thing. So we're going to see some examples where you can have the same ingredients pronounced different, quite divergent ways, depending on if they're spread across two syllables or concentrated into one. In Mandarin, adjacent sounds sometimes influence each other. And by that, I mean if they're next to each other in a syllable primarily. Some types of, yeah, they can, it can occur across syllables a little bit, maybe less important to learn. But within a syllable, we see huge differences. So we're going to be talking about some first tone words. First means high level sounding involving the consonant C in the onset. That's a palatal fricative C. Uh, we have a glide or high vowel sound E there. Then we have our nucleus is the vowel A, a low vowel, and then N, the N sound at the end of the syllable. So those hyphens are showing where the, what the position is within a word. So if we put all these ingredients, all these four segments plus the tone into one syllable, it will sound like this, xian, such as the word for go first, to be the first one. Xian, we have it in xiansheng, meaning Mr. Person who was born first. Now, the influence I was talking about within a syllable, when this low vowel a ah is between an e and an n, then it's going to raise a little bit to an e, eh, the epsilon sound. Xin, we also see nasal influence in anticipation of the n coda, the velum is going to lower and the vowel will have nasal resonance on it. Xin. The next example, we can have these same underlying segments in two syllables sounding like this, Xi'an, which is a place name. It was one of the ancient capitals of China. So again, for contrast, Xi'an, when these four sounds are together in one syllable, versus Xi'an, spread across two. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a really good, these, are, these two are really good. This is something that took me as also a learner of Mandarin a while. Um, but when you know these rules, it really, really helps you. Because when you just see it spelled out right in the pinyin, X-I-A-N, you want to say, you want to say it this way, Xi'an, as in from an English perspective, I guess. Um, but when you know these rules and you see that together in one syllable, yeah, Xi'an. This example also shows the importance of this little, it's a little hard to see in this font, but you have the apostrophe put in. Mm. That's to show there's a syllable break here. That's very so, useful. 
when and then we... it does the thing you said earlier, which is if something begins with a vowel, there'll be an inserted glottal stop. As in she and is that okay? Is that right? She on. It's not preceded by a yet in the same syllable, so that brightening of the ah vowel doesn't take place. It's just as basic. An, an. Now it sounds kind of like there's some downstepping in the tone. Is that? Xian. No, I don't think there. Not at all. All right. I mean, I'm not a native speaker. Xian. You have a very careful ear, though, Tyler. So I, I was just curious to ask. <laughs> I like that you denoted the glottal stop there too. Yeah. All right, very nice. But Pinion does a really nice job. I, I think that's so useful right there to, yeah, indicate that too. And before we go on real quick, I just want to yes. point out, uh, for those of you who don't know Chinese characters, there's a nice Oh, word. yeah. In Chinese, each character, so each written mark, always going to be one syllable in length. There is an exception for Mandarin. But this is a nice illustration of the basic principle. Xi'an, two syllables, is going to be two characters versus xian, single character. That's very useful. Yeah, so many people are intimidated by Mandarin, especially uh, writing Chinese characters. Um, but speaking from the experience of a learner, it's become way less intimidating and really cool. Once you uh, learn your first hundred or so, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it's no sweat. And you can see the sort of influence, the graphic influence of Chinese onto Korean. They, they like this one syllable, one block principle and mm -hmm. imported it into the into Hangul, which was created specifically for Korean. Yeah. I also uh, noticed the, uh, I'd never heard the Chinese pronunciation of that syllable before for go first, but I recognized it from the Japanese word sen, as in sensei. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, borrowed many, many words from Chinese, as Korean did as well. Sen mm -hmm. is actually closer to the Middle Chinese pronunciation, the way it was several centuries ago. Chinese, uh, Mandarin has added this medial glide, ye, xin. So it's really that the bright vowel inserted the glide rather than the glide raising the vowel, historic, viewed historically, but we're talking about synchronic. Analysis. But this is a really fascinating topic, is the, uh, you know, the comparisons between Chinese, Japanese, Korean. Um, and we'll be, we'll be digging into that in a future book, actually. And we've also got one blog post, maybe a couple mm -hmm. of on it, but the one by Levi is worth looking at. He mm -hmm. talks about his correspondences. Absolutely. That's at the Lango blog, langoinstitute.com. Click under the things heading and you'll find our blog there. And we have a bunch of students actually learning uh, one of these or two of these, three of these, and it's very helpful to think about. To our next segment. Hey, F the ineffable. So today we're going to talk about complex syllables. Now we've been talking about it through the whole podcast. And if you've listened to our other podcasts, you know, we always leave a challenge towards the end. That's sometimes tangentially, but this time <laughs> particularly related to our complex. So the rules of the game are, first of all, count sounds, not letters. That's just a general rule for language learning. Always pay attention to sounds more than letters if you're trying to speak and listen. And in this case, we're interested in sounds. We want to know what is the most sounds in a single syllable in English. If you know a non-English language and you want to submit some of those too, we are interested. In oh yeah, that'd be cool too. Welcoming that. 
But English has pretty complex syllables. And if you are a native speaker, you can dive through your mental lexicon and see what you find. The most complex one we came up with was strengths. <laughs> so if you have more than one strength, if you have multiple of them, you might have strengths. Now pronounced that way, as I just did, I think you could argue there is eight sounds. Yeah, eight in fast sounds. speech, it becomes reduced as you, <laughs> as you might imagine, but strengths. Yeah, I agree yeah, I with don't, you. I don't think I pronounced the, the TH in writing, the theta in sounds. I think I just say strengths. I do too. Strengths. 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 Yeah, but a careful speaker, say uh, if someone was really trying to learn this and I was uh, teaching them English, I would probably carefully say strengths. Maybe they were hearing the word strange or something and you wanted to emphasize, no, no, I don't mean strange, I mean strengths. You can take your, take your time on it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's always the remote possibility that strength becomes something else, like a type of boat, I imagine. And you were like, no, 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 strengths. <laughs> I don't know. Not unimaginable with uh, all these new words coming in. <laughs> yeah, we're just making up new words, but that's that's the name of the game of human language. Let's have some new words, new sounds, change how we talk. That's how we do it. The beauty of it. So what we want to know is what's the biggest syllable you can make? Now, strengths is a renowned big syllable. It may be hard to beat. So if you can beat it, if you can find one with more than eight sounds in careful speech, you got to let us know it's an emergency. But even if you can think of other <laughs> ones with seven or six, it's going to be pretty hard and pretty impressive. So go ahead and let us know on Twitter. Let us know on Instagram. Email me. Uh, you know, you can send a carrier pigeon. I want to know what is the most complex syllable you can think of in English. If you can think of complex syllables in other languages, I'm interested to know too. Uh, I think some languages like of the Pacific Northwest are going to have just massively complex syllables. I've heard it called extra syllabic material because they're like, this can't all be part of one syllable. Uh, I think that if you speak, I'm not going to spoil it too much. I don't want to give you too many to look for, but there are languages which allow K to be a nucleus. So they allow stops as well. And these ones might have pretty complex concepts and odas, codas too. Yes. So. There might be Scandinavian languages that mm -hmm. allow more strings of consonants than English does even. But, That's um, right. I, I was thinking, you know, Berber, Bella, Kula, Klalem type stuff. But of course, there's probably even some European ones that'll uh, get pretty wild. Mm -hmm. So we want to know what you think about complex syllables. Uh, and I want to mention, it's probably in my outro, but uh, we will do a live wordplay segment soon with Peter as the host. And this is the stuff we'll talk about. We also may have some hink pinks or hinkity pinks, some wordplay um, involved as well. So watch for that. It'll be live on our Instagram. Has a date been scheduled for that? Not yet. Mm -hmm. So you got to watch this space sometime next month. <laughs> that brings us to wordplay. Speaking of wordplay, topic we take so seriously. Today we're going to share uh, a useful mnemonic that is in our second book in the Lingo, hard to see Lingo Korean series. That's yeah, hard with this background. There we go. To put it right here. OK. 
Okay, this is, comes from our new book, Korean Pando, Korean Peninsula, spelled P U N N I N S U L A, Zing. And this, this particular pun is a great mnemonic for learning the native Korean numbers. As we put it in the book, the Korean is very blessed to have two number systems. Mm -hmm. One is Sino-Korean based on Chinese numbers, and then one is native Korean. And I don't know which one you think is harder. What do you think? My husband thinks it's um, the native Korean system. What do you think? I found it that way too as a beginning. As a Chinese. Because mm -hmm. you know the Chinese numbers. That's that cool. helps you. I agreed. The, so, Chinese, the Chinese system, they're all the same size. Each numeral is just a single syllable. And, in, and then the there's kind of a tone pattern system too to help you remember, at least the tones. Oh, when you're learning Mandarin, mm -hmm. that, that, right. that's not so relevant for Korean. But uh, yeah, if you do know the Chinese numbers, this obviously the Sino-Korean system will be very, uh, will be much easier, I think. Um, in terms of the Korean, native Korean numbers, I don't know why, but nine and uh, eight, nine, ten are always a bit harder, even seven, too. And this is a great mnemonic for learning those numbers. And this is hat tip from our Lango intern, Libai, Libai Shi. All right, so our mnemonic here. So number nine in Korean system is Ahop, and number 10 is Yol. So our mnemonic is I hope, Ahop. I hope all nine of y'all, y'all, can count to ten. And in the book, illustrated by our talented illustrator, Farah, you got, can you see it? Hopping in and out of existence along with your face. Uh-oh, all right. Well, you just got to buy the book to see the beautiful yeah. illustrations it's then. for sale on Amazon. Anywhere else you can get it? You can get it on uh, your website. You can contact us, uh, or but, or on Amazon. You can get it as the ebook or the printed book. And the print, I will say, is beautiful. So I encourage you to get it. On the front, you see it. Mm -hmm. We've got the Korean Pando, the Korean Peninsula, and it looks like someone's getting ready to go there by studying Korean, right? And so, please check it out in person, uh, in the print version, or ebook. That brings us to Sasak. What is okay. Sasak? What right, is so it? Let me tell you a little bit about Sasak and how we got yes, this um, kind of idiom from Sasak. So Sasak is a language or a number of languages spoken on the island of Lombok in, Bal in Indonesia. Now you may not have heard of Lombok, but Lombok is across the Wallace line from Bali. So it's just east of uh, Bali. I hear Lombok has excellent surfing. I don't know how to surf, but if you're a surfer, you might want to check it out. Um, I've been to Bali, and I can attest to the beauty of the, mm. the beaches there. And uh, I don't surf, but I saw a lot of surfers out there, and I watched them. It does look like a good spot for it. Uh, I have a good friend who is a native speaker of Sasak, a variety of Sasak. There are several varieties, and um, just from my uh, brief experience studying Sasak, it appears that they, many people can understand each other because they have a lot of words that are the same, but that the grammars of the different varieties are really, really different. And it's very exciting if you're a linguist. Uh, there's a lot of good work coming out. Contact us if you want references. So um, my good friend, 
uh, and professional linguist, native speaker of Sasak, told me a little kind of uh, uh, idiom in Sasak, which is angit um, angit kayan manok, right? And this is, it means angit angit is a reduplication of warm, right? <laughs> and tai is the word for um, feces in most Austronesian languages. Un, the suffix there, you might not know tayan is a suffixed word, but it is, and that's the third singular possessive form. Um, and then monok is chicken. You might remember monok from, uh, it's cognate with the Hawaiian word manu, right? So those, that's a very common uh, Austronesian word, originally manok, meaning chicken, and uh, became to mean bird out in Polynesia under Manu, when they lost the coda because Oceanic languages didn't like codas. So what it means is it's used to describe a situation or person who is very excited or on fire to do something but quickly loses passion. Kind of like, um, yeah, someone who may be really, really interested in it. I have seen this a million times myself, not just in language learning, but in all sorts of things. Particularly, I noticed it, I also trained jujitsu. And there are many people who come and love it at first, but burn out know, quickly. You just have to love getting smashed for every single day for years. It's just, that's all there is to it. It's the whole sport. So people lose their fire for it. And uh, uh, my good friend Nisa told us this little idiom. And uh, I quite like it. So if you have some idioms or jokes or riddles in a language you think we haven't mentioned or a language we have mentioned, but you just have one, uh, you should let us know. We might shout you out too. I really enjoyed this one from Nisa. And as someone in love with Austronesian languages, if you know one in an Austronesian language, definitely let me know, even if it doesn't make the podcast. I want to know. Can I ask real quick about the structure of this one? Is this part the subject, the chicken poop? <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Okay, so... Uh, So reduplicated. Yeah. And is the is it the predicate out in front? I kind of think the whole thing is a noun phrase. So I should have asked the structure from Nisa. I'd need to hear it in a sentence to know. I wrote a paper about uh, this variety's syntax, but I focused entirely on the voice alternations. So I do know how verbs work. But one of the problems here is the same kind of things you can get on verbs, you can get on nouns when it comes to disagreement, the third singular. So that's a really a genitive suffix. Right. So I think that thing is indicating I'd have to ask Nisa. All right, all right. But I believe that that is actually referencing the thing you're talking about, the person or the situation that was on fire but isn't anymore. Mm. Um, <laughs> although it could be also the chickens possessing of their own poop. Their own warm poop. Because <laughs> essentially this thing out loud is like, um, it's referring, <laughs> so this is a bit crass, but this is the way life is. If you grew up with chickens, then you know. I'm from the country and I know. But uh, the chicken's poop will be very warm at first, but quickly cool off. So if you step in it, you'll know firsthand. <laughs> if you ever spend time in a village uh, in flip-flops, which I've spent quite a bit myself, then you'll learn this lesson firsthand as well. Uh, so that's why it's kind of funny. You have to know about chickens to know why it's... So cultural if you relate, it's too. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's hilarious. I think it's funny. All right, outro time. 
couple announcements before we wrap up. And if you made it this far, then you are a true Langaroo. <laughs> right. This is an important announcement. This Langopod is, after the third episode, we are now going to syndicate on YouTube and on iTunes. So please follow us in both places. You can also read more about podcast topics on our blog. I thought the last one was really great. Had a couple examples from English as well as from Portuguese. Any more to say on that? Those will be written by Peter and just a, a snippet from some of the more interesting aspects of this podcast. All right, our fall two sessions coming up. October 12th or 19th, we're offering a little bit earlier start, so we don't go too much into the holiday season. And these will be on-site, online, and blended classes. And we also, yeah, Tyler? All, you want to mention what all languages we're offering? Yes, let's do it. We now offer uh, a bunch of languages. We have Korean taught by me, Tyler. Chinese, Japanese, German, French, English. Mm-hmm. Peter is teaching Portuguese. We have Luis teaching Italian and Spanish and Marison teaching Spanish as well. So we offer quite a list of languages now. Uh, please let us know if you're interested. We're running an early bird promo through October 11th. So you still have time to save 10% off of all language programs. We also have conversation hours going on. These will be entirely online and a variety of topics. Right now we're doing uh, these really fun ones on table topics that extend out into a lot of good conversation. Mm -hmm. Linguistics for language learning workshops. We just did one. Want to talk a little bit about that? The English pronunciation skills workshop. It was taught by Tyler and Peter. So we are, well, what we've done so far is introduce IPA, the consonant and vowel symbols for learners so that they can effectively use dictionaries online or print to learn how to pronounce words that they haven't heard yet. I thought it went so well. By the end, uh, the students were transcribing in IPA, doing really well. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we're that's coming up that I forgot to mention will be we're teaching Chinese characters, Hanja, specifically geared for learners of Korean. Mm -hmm. That's coming yeah. up shortly as well. A lot of exciting things going on. And if you have any questions, comments, please contact Peter. You can contact all of us, but Peter is the main, so get at him. Or DM us, add us on social. That's, right. That's it, right? Same for Twitter and every, everywhere else. Our name's the same across our platforms. So no matter what you use for social, you can get a hold of us. And thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next time, episode four. Yes, thank you all. Ciao. Annyeonghaseyo. Annyeonghaseyo. Bye again.